What's your favorite Christmas story, and how does it start? "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house." I don't think that's anyone's favorite Christmas story. It's boring. What about this one? Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. Or if you're a lover of literature, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. And Scrooge signed it. Maybe you don't like books. Maybe you prefer movies. How about this one? Oh, hello. You're probably here about the story. Elves love to tell stories. I bet you didn't know that about elves. There's probably a lot of things you don't know about elves. That's from Elf. Or how about this one? You don't like flying, do you? That's from the great Christmas time classic, Die Hard. All December, we've been in this sermon series called Long Story. And the big idea is that the Christmas story is a long story. It's not, it's not just a story about one night in Bethlehem, but actually it's a story that stretches across all of history and the entirety of the Bible. And so we've been tracing that story through the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus. And we've seen how for millennia before that first Christmas, God was working out a plan that eventually led to Jesus' birth on that night in Bethlehem. And so we've traced the long story through the Old Testament, and then we get to the New Testament, which was written just after Jesus' lifetime, and the first book in the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew, and the first story that Matthew tells is the Christmas story, and we want to look today at how he starts his Christmas narrative. And so it's the first uh, 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. Here's what he says. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And it goes on like that for some time. I'm going to skip to the end. Verse 16 says, uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There's something different, right? It's, it's a different way to start a story. Like all those other stories, they kind of get us into the action. They grab us. They get the plot moving. But this, Matthew, I, I thought this was why Sarah was bringing a pillow to church. Like, he starts off with a list of names, mostly hard to pronounce. What is he doing? Why start the story this way? 
In the ancient world, your, your genealogy, your record of ancestry, was your birth certificate. It was your, your social insurance number. So part of what Matthew is doing here is he's giving us that information for Jesus. And he's doing that so that his story is grounded and rooted in history. His story is grounded and rooted in the long story. And so um, Matthew, Matthew is saying, listen, this story I'm about to tell, it really happened. It's part of the historical record. You have every reason to believe that it's true. That's what Matthew does here in chapter 1. That's what Matthew does throughout his gospel, that he's, he's telling a story and claiming it's true and, and almost daring you to investigate it. But there's more going on here. See, in the ancient world, your, your ancestry was your social insurance number, and it was your uh, birth certificate. It was also your resume. Your family was your credentials in that time. And so if you read through the New Testament, uh, you'll see, for instance, that um, the Apostle Paul, a couple times he actually brags about being part of the tribe of Benjamin. It's a good tribe. You'll see it's at one point in Jesus' adult life, uh, some people actually undermine Jesus by, by insinuating that he's an illegitimate child. See, in the ancient world, your family's, uh, your family's honor or shame were your honor and shame, your family's status was your status. And so it was commonplace at that time for people to get creative, for people to edit or embellish their genealogies, right? If it's, if the, if it's your resume, have, have you ever lied on your resume? People, people did that back then. And so if you had, if you had a... Um, a relative who was very prominent and impressive and noble. You would make sure people knew that. You would feature them prominently when you talked about your genealogy. And, you know, you know if you were maybe descended from a great king or a great uh, leader, you would say, hey, this person is my ancestor. They're special. I must be special too. And then the people in your family who were misfits or villains or, uh, you know, the black sheep of the family, you'd, you'd kind of try not to mention them. Often they got deleted completely from, from people's genealogies. And so it was common for people to edit and embellish their genealogies. Everyone did it to make themselves look better. Everyone, that is, except for Jesus. And that's what's interesting is, is this doesn't strike us as modern readers, but for first century Jews, and that's Jesus' audience, or that's uh, Matthew's audience, the, it, this would have really stuck out because instead of going out of its way to show how impressive Jesus is and his family is, it's almost like it goes out of its way to emphasize everything that's unworthy and dysfunctional and sinful about Jesus' ancestry. For starters, he lists five women. Okay, he lists uh, Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. 
in that day, it was a very patriarchal society, and the Bible doesn't say that was a good thing, but it was the case. And so often genealogies just didn't include women because people weren't that interested in the women in your genealogy. And yet five of them are deliberately included here in Jesus' genealogy. And by the way, they're not five uh, high-status women either. There are women in Jesus' genealogy that, that are more high-status, like, uh, like Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, who were the great kind of revered uh, matriarchs of the Israelite nation. Matter of fact, these women, other than Mary, the other four are actually Gentiles. They're non-Israelites, either by blood or by marriage, which again doesn't strike us as odd as modern readers, but for an ancient Jewish audience, that was everything. Because for an ancient Jewish audience, Gentiles were, you didn't associate with them. They were not allowed actually to enter into the temple to worship because they were ceremonially unclean. They weren't kosher. And if you uh, spent time with them, you would also become ceremonially unclean. And so they were rejected. They were avoided. And yet here they are deliberately included. Matthew goes out of, out of his way to include them here. So we have people who are, are, who are the, uh, the ignored gender. We have people who are the uh, avoided race. And not only that, we also have some people with some very questionable morals in this list. And so what you find actually is if you examine this list, um, you'll find that, again, Matthew goes out of his way to kind of dredge up some of the most painful and embarrassing and egregious sins from Jesus' ancestry. So verse 3 says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Again, he doesn't have to mention Tamar. He doesn't, that's not normal practice. He goes out of his way to mention Tamar, and in doing so, he recalls uh, a scandalous story from Israel's past. Matthew's readers would have known this story. It's in Genesis chapter 38. This story is rated 18a. I'm not going to tell you the story uh, other than to say that, that Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, but also the mother of his children. I'll leave it at that. Then in verse 5, we, we get Rahab introduced. If you know the book of Joshua, you'll know that she is first introduced as a prostitute by occupation. If you go to verse 6, that's probably the pinnacle here, the, the most shocking example, because it says, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Here's, this should be the most impressive moment of Jesus' genealogy. King David was the greatest king of Israel's history. This, this is a source of pride for Jesus' family, or it should be. But Matthew, look what Matthew does. He doesn't say, you know, Jesus is descended from David, the great king who united the kingdom of Israel and ushered in a golden age of the monarchy. No, he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. 
you may or may not know that story, I'll, I'll tell it briefly. Uh, Uriah was Uriah was a good friend of David's. One of his closest friends. They were buddies together in the army. They had fought together. David owed Uriah his life. But at one point in, in his life, David uh, betrayed Uriah, impregnated his wife Bathsheba, and then had Uriah killed to cover up the affair. It's the most shameful and shocking uh, moment in the life of this great king of Israel. And it's like Matthew says, remember? So we have the ignored gender, we have the racially unclean, and we have some of the most despicable sinners of Israel's history. And all of these broken, dysfunctional, excluded people are publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. That's how Matthew starts his Christmas narrative. See, here's the big idea. Matthew is about to tell the Christmas story, and what he's doing here is setting the tone for that Christmas story. He's about to tell this story, which is a story of God's amazing grace, a story of God's uh, extravagant, undeserved love for human beings. And so he begins, he sets the tone for that story with this list, because this list is a powerful illustration of God's grace of God's extravagant, undeserved love for human beings. And so what he's doing here is he's showing us how deep and wide and strong God's grace is in three ways. First, this list shows us that God's grace is deep and wide and strong enough to bring triumph out of tragedy. So this genealogy, it's, it's you know, we just spent a little bit of time in it, and you can see there's a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of um, mistakes. But the list shows us that in the midst of the sin and shame and dysfunction, that God was at work to bring about good. And the sin and shame and dysfunction uh, were not good in themselves. In fact, they caused some suffering and some consequences. But that God worked through it to bring about good. And if he did that across the entire history of a nation... He can do that in your life as well. This Christmas, what troubles are you walking through? This Christmas, what mistakes have you made? What regrets do you hold on to? One of the things that, that Jesus' ancestry shows us is that no life is so far off course that God can't bring redemption out of it. Secondly, God's grace is deep and wide and strong enough to overturn our power and prestige. As, as we've been saying, people, people back then would kind of try and play this game with their genealogies, and we still play this game in many ways today, this game where we try to uh, make ourselves look impressive, where we say, who, who can have the most money or the most, uh, you know, the biggest following or be the most beautiful or have it all together and and 
we do so many different things to prop up our own ego, our own image, prop up uh, our own sense of self-worth. We try and compete in this game of power and prestige. It's a sick game that we people play. We've been doing it for thousands of years. And this list is like Jesus saying, not so in my family. It's not going to be like that among my family. Which brings us to the, the third point, which is that God's grace is deep and wide and strong enough to include the broken and the sinful. Those who are unworthy, those who are broken, those who are excluded and maligned and forgotten, all of them are included in the genealogy. All of them are given the honor of inclusion in Jesus' family. And the message of the New Testament is, so are we. The message of the New Testament is, so are we. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. Or you could look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about how the Ephesians started out rebellious and, and sinful and filled with, with wrath and malice, but now because of Jesus, Ephesians 2 says, Now you are members of God's family. That the, the message of the, well, that the broken are invited in. If you've ever felt like you don't measure up, like you're too dysfunctional, you struggle too much, you've done too many things wrong, if you've ever felt completely unworthy of acceptance, the message of Christmas and of the gospel is yes, you are so you'll fit right in. The message of Matthew chapter 1 is, yes, you are undeserving, ill-deserving, so you'll fit right in with Jesus' family, and the broken are invited in. Not because of your righteousness, your prestige, or your credentials, but because of God's deep and wide and strong grace, you're invited in. Back in 1999, there was, a, uh, there was a Nike commercial. It's fairly well known. Uh, in it, they showed, uh, the whole commercial was just um, black and white shots of different athletes who had um, various scars and injuries. There was a boxer with a, with a cauliflower ear. There was a bull rider who had, who had a scar around his eye and the eye itself was not working. There's a hockey player who had just horribly calloused feet from his, his skates. And so it just, for 60 seconds, gives you these pictures of these people with broken bodies and no explanation. And then at the end of the commercial, it gives you the Nike logo and says, just do it. And at the time, people said, this is, this is a weird ad. It's, it's incomprehensible. Incom it doesn't make sense. And the source of the of the controversy was not that they showed these these pictures it was the it was the soundtrack because they're showing these pictures and in the background they got the soft piano music and it's it's Joe Cocker and he's singing you are so beautiful to me 
You know the song, right? See, the, the idea is that to these athletes, because of their dedication to their sport, there's some sort of, um, there's some sort of beauty in the midst of their, their scars and their injuries. And what Matthew gives us here is a picture of God's grace. And God's grace is similarly jarring and counterintuitive. That God doesn't say to us, I'm here to be friends, I'm here to be family, I'm here to interact with those who have it all together, those who, uh, are, who are pretty and unstained and unscarred and everything's working well in their lives and they've figured it out and they've done no wrong, but rather this God who reaches out to the world because of his deep and wide and strong grace and looks upon all of us with our scars and our injuries, with our brokenness and our dysfunction. And he sings, you're so beautiful to me. Because we believe that God's grace is deep and wide and strong, because we believe God's family includes the sinners and the broken and the dysfunctional, here at South Langley Church, uh, in January, we take time to, um, to wrestle together honestly with our internal struggles, uh, internal struggles. And so we have a sermon series in January called Broken and, in, and Beautiful, Broken and Beautiful, and it's all about the Bible's response to our physical and mental brokenness and dysfunction. If you have deep internal struggles that you're walking through this Christmas season, you'll fit right in in Jesus' family. And you'll fit right in at South Langley Church. And so whatever journey you're walking through, we'd love to walk that together with you. We invite you to join us starting January 7th. So I'll invite the choir and the band up as we close in prayer here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you 